y'all. All right, everybody, back in your seats. Let's get started. The John Curley, Sherry Elliger Show. Oh, boy. News and entertainment. Let's do it. Diving in. I'm going to get a little philosophical here. I've been sort of struggling with this. We sort of talked about it just briefly a couple days ago. I was talking about uh, Voltaire and the story he wrote called Candide. And one of the famous lines from that was, mind your own garden. And the idea is that these three guys are coming across this farmer and said, did you hear about the person, that the, the, you know, the king or whatever, that got killed? And how about this person that got killed? And the farmer had no idea what he was talking about. And they said, well, don't you want to know? Don't, aren't you want to be aware of what's happening? And the farmer said, no, I all I need to worry about is, is the growing of the crops and taking care of my three daughters. And that is my life, right? Mind your own garden. This an interesting piece, of, a little something sent out on Instagram. Um, somebody sent it to me. I can't remember who it was, but I appreciate this. Um, my computer's not back up yet, Jacob. So play this and we'll talk about it on the other side. Just the idea of, um, all, just think of all the news, all of the news that you can get right there at your fingertips every single second of every single hour that you are awake. I do not think human beings are supposed to know about every catastrophe and crisis that goes on in the world. I think only God has the emotional capacity to handle knowing in real time how the world is falling apart i think we 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 do we have enough on our plate as it is just handling each other and handling ourselves not only to take in open another shooting open another bomb open another you know plague open another earthquake open another wildfire like we can't handle that and i don't think i genuinely don't think we were ever supposed to know how much crap was going on on a daily basis I'd seen a piece written a long time ago. This guy talked about when the telegram was invented. He said, this is not going to do anything for anybody. Why I, in sitting here in New York City, need to know about a train derailment somewhere in Texas. There's nothing I can do about it. The information doesn't do anything for me. All it does is take some of my time and all my time as I have, and that's the most valuable thing. So this guy was sort of pooping on the the uh, telegraph, and then people did the same thing when the, the idea of the printing press came out. So... Bringing to, and this might be, we might be slicing our own throats here with the idea of like, is it good that we get all of this news? And what are we supposed to do with all this news? And will we live a better life, a healthier life, if for some reason we were only confined to the news that was important to us rather than 24 hours a day bathing in it? I don't know that we can turn it back now. I think that we've gotten to the point where not only are we inundated with news, we're numb to it. If it's a shooting that involves three people, it's a a story that makes the headlines for a day, half a day. So mm-hmm. it's it's one of those things where I think we've we've gotten so used to the influx of all of this bad news and all of this information that we're are, we're sort of shut down to it. It it affects us if it touches us in a way that we can relate to. If it's something that we can understand in a in a, a visceral way, I think it then starts to impact us. The scary part is that after a while, it ceases to impact you because it's so much. Right. Well, so you've, you've proven my point then. You say you shut down to it. You, then obviously, 
the brain is responding to shutdown or the brain is responding to it's desensitizing itself or it's determining like we did when I was working in Washington, D.C., we weren't going to be covering any shootings that didn't have at least five dead people. Um, Neil Postman, who wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death, this is from 1999, talking about the phenomenon, similar phenomenon of just too much news. There are newspapers whose editors do not yet grasp that in a technological world, information is a problem, not a solution. They will tell us of things we already know about and will give little or no space to providing a sense of context or coherence. Let us suppose, for example, that a 14-year-old Palestinian boy hurls a Molotov cocktail at two 18-year-old Israeli soldiers in Jerusalem. The explosion knocks one of the soldiers down and damages his left eye. The other soldier, terrified, fires a shot at the Palestinian that kills him instantly. The injured soldier loses the sight of his eye. All of this we learn of on television or from radio. The next day we are told about it again in the newspaper. Why? The newspaper will add nothing unless it can tell something about the meaning of the event, including why this event is in the newspaper at all. There are at least 40 wars presently going on someplace in the world, and we can assume that young people are being killed in all of them. Why do I need to know about this event? Why is what happens in Jerusalem more important than what happens in Ghana? Will this event in Jerusalem have an effect on other events? Is this something that has happened many times before? Is it likely to happen again? Is someone to blame for what happened here? And in this context, what do we mean by blame? Now, a newspaper that does not answer these questions is useless. It is worse than useless. It contributes incoherence and confusion to minds that are already overloaded with information. That's 1999. And just think about it now, right, with the creation of the Internet and the amount of news that you can get. That is, we do want to know. People do want to know what's happening. It's a strange thing. I know when I arrive back into Seattle, I travel all the time, and I always come back. I always say the Uber driver. So, so what I miss is <laughs> kind of a weird thing. It's like, well, it was raining yesterday. Like, okay, all right, rain. All right, anything else? You kind of want to know what's going on. I guess that's a primitive thing of, of us. That's our, our monkey brain that wants to know, you know, where am I and am I going to be safe? Does the next, does a cut from the Newsweek editors work right here? Jacob, have I hit the first one? Uh, we can, we, we can play it now or we can save it later. Yeah. Th- that one's more okay. about, yeah, news, you know, consumption. Oh, how news, yeah. why, why people don't trust yeah, news yeah. as much. Yeah. You know what? Tom's last thing that he said to us, Sherry, other than aren't we going to order more food? They're at that French restaurant. <laughs> that was mine, too. <laughs> why do we have to share? <laughs> why, why are we sharing a trout? <laughs> it was odd. And I, I know that with the way the restaurants were, you'd, like, you'd order small things and they would come out. Then they stopped coming out. And then uh, then I'm looking at the trout's head like, God, I guess I'm going to have to eat that. All right. <laughs> Tom, after covering the news, reporting the news, and working at Cairo for God how many years, 30-some years or whatever, his last thing when he left was, well, that's it. I'm not going to read. 
Anything that I don't need to read, I'm going to read French novels. I'm going to read uh, Thomas Mann's Purple Mountain. I'm going to read what I want. I'm going to go to operas. I'm going to go to art. I'm going to see museums. I'm going to go to plays. But I'm not going to consume the news. He said he was going to just completely cut himself off for an entire year of no news at all. And we've, we've done stories on people who have done this as well. They just don't read the newspaper. They just stop. Not to become a hermit, but they only care about the stuff that they care about. They mind their own garden. Tom, so dedicated to that commitment, didn't even come on this show. Right, Jacob? We called him. Didn't want to come on. <laughs> that's, that's so true. it's like, wow, that guy's serious. I struggle with this every single day. I wake up at 530 in the morning, get a cup of coffee, take the dogs for a quick little walk, and I read and read and read and read and read. Of course, I'm a slow reader, but I'm reading. I take a break for an hour and then read and read and read. And then at night, before I go to bed, another read another two hours. I'm constantly consuming the news. Constantly. And I keep thinking to myself, it's toxic and it's stressful. And sometimes you hear it come out uh, in my voice on the air. And I think there's got to be a balance to all of this. But there is no balance. And you have to just keep consuming it, reacting to it, and then giving your opinion on it. And I'm not biting the hand that feeds me. I appreciate the job. But uh, are we better off with the fact that we can know everything that's happening in the world with just a touch of the end of our fingers? I don't know that we're that we're better off. I, I think we have uh, reached a point, a point of saturation where it is. It can be it can be very toxic. It's difficult for you and I to have a real clear perspective on this because it's what we do for a living. And for us, it's it's ten times what it is for somebody else. I mean, somebody right, else. It's the passing. hazard of the job, right? You're going yeah, down yeah. in the mine. Yeah. Okay. Got it. And, yeah. and you yeah. and you are always scouring for for what could be talkable. So, but the average person, I don't think, um, certainly doesn't have it to that degree. But they are, they are, if they have the, uh, a phone, they, then they get alerts. They are constantly reminded of breaking news, of things that are happening all over the world. If they watch mm-hmm. any kind of cable news show, it is, you know, it is always out there. I don't think though that the average person delves into it to the point where it's conflicting with their regular life. I don't think that they're sitting around going, I can't go to work today because there was another bomb or Ukraine's falling apart. I think most people get on with their lives. It's background noise in their lives yeah. and they've become very used to it and they prioritize it based on what's relatable to them. If mm-hmm. it's about a school shooting and they have children, that relates to them. That makes them, that worries them. That gives them a, 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 a sense of vulnerability. If it's something in a far-flung place, they feel sorry for, certainly for people in Turkey and Syria, but it's far enough away that they can only have empathy for it to a certain degree because mm-hmm. they can't they, they, they can't relate to being in that country. So I, I think we feel it much more keenly than, than the average person does. And right. I also find myself, when I'm having conversations with people, sometimes I feel like I'm doing a radio show, like I'll say, did you hear about the whatever? And I'll give all these details, right? And I'll tell the whole story about the so-and-so that did this and this and this and this. And they kind of look at me like, uh, that's a lot, you know, okay, I don't, I didn't need to know everything. Um, did they yell out, did they yell out, hot take? <laughs> they said, that guy didn't mean to go to, to, to oh, Sydney, okay. yeah, yeah. Montana. Um, 
But do you do that? Do you find that you you oh, over-explain or, yeah, over or the most annoying yeah. person? I'll give you one last thing. We're, we're probably not going to have time for the rest of these stories in here. But uh, President Biden talks about uh, the balloons. I'll tell you about that in a bit. Doesn't really affect your life at all. But, but Putman, who it was a Putman, is the guy that wrote the book. I think is the name. Um, he said, you know, in 1947, if you said to the American people, we can vote on this, here's this box that's going to project images and sound. And just want to let you know, before you vote, the average kid, before they start kindergarten, will have already watched 5,000 hours of it. And by the time the kid is 13 years old, they will have seen 695,000 commercials. And the average kid, by the time they are 12 years old, will have logged more than 75,000 hours in front of it. Do you want to vote on it? Do we want this? Do we want this in our house? Is everybody okay with that? It's the same thing you said, you know, in 1907, if you said, hey, there's this machine, it's going to be able, it's going to be able to transport you from here to here, but we're going to have 35,000 deaths a year. We're going to have increased smog. We're going to have traffic jams. We're going to have all of this stuff. Would you still want the car? You know, the hindsight being what it is, seeing what it is. And, and as because I think is, um, uh, to Tocqueville said that American people, uh, hunger for new, always something new, always progressive, moving forward, getting something else, something new, something exciting. What is the next thing that gives us entertainment or comfort? Now, this guy, I don't even know if he's still alive, but he was, he, not a hermit, not a, sort of a little Luddite-esque that he hated technology because he thought technology removed us from our humanity. He said the worst invention in the last 30 years has been call waiting. <laughs> he said he refuses to have it because it, yeah. it says to the person you're talking to when all of a sudden because hey i gotta let you go that i've now prioritized you've called me for a reason and your reason was important to you but now i'm going to make the decision that your reason for calling me is not as important as this next person who's coming in behind you i see that person's name and i'm going to prioritize them over you even though you have called to communicate an idea, a feeling, an emotion, a story, or something. I have to let you go because this other person is more important to me. Although Gen Z would say that is the greatest invention because it gives them an escape route so they don't have to continue a conversation. They're on not the even phone. using the phone anyway. Yes. Yeah. 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 I, I would love to be able to find out from Tom if he was able to hold his commitment to not watch, read news, not to consume news, and then how it made him feel. I, I listened, I've read that Candide piece, uh, and you, you see, you think, okay, would I be, would you be better off if you just limited your knowledge to only the local paper that came out with, you know, the eight or nine pages? Little local paper. We've got one here in Cleelum. I walk by it all the time. I don't ever pick it up, but I probably should because that would be just local news that could be relevant to me. So I think you would feel a void. I, I think that we have gone beyond that point. Uh, unless you're so absorbed in whatever it is that you're doing, it is part of the fabric of our lives now to have this information coming at us at all times. And and I think we do a a, a reasonably good job of compartmentalizing it is it is it healthy probably not okay but then, don't, I, then if it's not healthy and if you have to make some sort of changes like well i got to compartmentalize it or i've got to shut down or i've got to do this or that it's basically your brain telling you you know this it's making ch- choices for you um by creating anxiety sending you signals like stress and stuff like that
So I, I, I remember I told you my dad used to always scream at the television on his last year of life. I'm sitting there watching him watch Chuck Schumer. I said, Dad, Dad, there's Chuck Schumer with the glasses on the end of his nose. Who cares? Who cares? I'd call him up with a thing. Dad, you see this? See that? See this? Who cares? Why don't you take a who cares attitude with that job of yours? I remember I tried it, Jacob, for like 10 minutes. <laughs> it's, just, it's hard to sustain. Uh, it, you know, saying who cares doesn't fill a lot of airtime, I think, is the biggest problem. <laughs> <laughs> you have to have opinion on everything, right? <laughs> yeah, here's my his story. Where Nikki Haley's running, who cares? <laughs> Tune into that show, everybody. Oh, my God. All right. Hopefully management wasn't listening to any of that. Yeah. (laughs) Three to seven. Who cares, show? (laughs) Who cares? Here we go. The John Curlish, Sherry Ellinger show. Uh, By the way, uh, good piece uh, that Jason Rance has. And uh, thanks to uh, Frank Summerall over there at uh, MyNorthwest.com. You can read more about it, about how the uh, police in Seattle had, um, without them knowing, they were um, being recorded. I read this article. I thought, oh, my gosh, am I a commando parent? The controversy commando parenting is trending. Oh, boy, trending. Uh, here's what the psychiatrists uh, have to say about kids that are impacted and uh, how it impacts kids. Okay, Sherry, I'm sitting down. What did I do to my children? Well, first of all, let's talk about what commando parenting is, unless you would like oh, to describe no. it. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. So commando parenting is is basically full control over your children. So if you have a kid that is really out of control, what you're supposed to do, and this this became very popular with Dr. Phil back around 2004 and 2005, and he advocated for this. Uh, they're now looking at this, revisiting it, and, and deciding it's not necessarily very effective or is it a good idea. But anyway, back then, the idea was if you have a child that's misbehaving or really in trouble, you remove just about everything from their universe. You take everything out of their room, any kind of luxury, phone, television, anything. You also don't touch them. You don't hug them. You don't give them a kiss. You can give them a handshake. Um, you basically deny them any kind of luxury or anything that might offer them comfort. And then you work on a series of rewards. If the behavior starts to change, they yep. can get something back. If they start to change their attitude, they can get this back. So, mm-hmm. This was for pretty extreme cases when people have really lost any hope of the kid being redeemable. You, you go to this sort of measure. What they're finding now, though, is that by doing this, it can cause real psychological damage to a child. It can lower their self-esteem. They have some mental health problems. Um, they also don't trust their parents. It encourages secretive behavior because they feel as though they have to hide everything from their parents or they'll get in trouble again. And, but there are parents that say, look, I had to do this as a last resort. It was the only way I could gain control over my child. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Sounds familiar. And so <laughs> when, were you a commando parent or were you more of a, eh, like a commando light parent? Uh, I don't know about the – well, we wouldn't read books on it. We didn't see Dr. Phil on it. I guess we did do some research. Rye was really out of control, and we took everything out of his room. I mean everything. He had just a mattress on the floor and a pillow. That was it. We closed the door, kept him in there. 
Um, he we sent food in, and he was allowed to come out to eat. Uh, go ahead, come out to go to the bathroom. Uh, that was it. And then bo- I told you guys that's during the pre-show, and you're like, maybe we should get Rye on the phone and see if it worked, and find out if you know if it if it if it messed him up. <laughs> well, well, what can I ask? I mean, you don't have to reveal too much, but was his behavior so bad that you thought that they could cause that he was going to be hazardous to himself or to somebody else? I, I cannot remember why we were trying to break the wild pony. Um, I don't remember the catalyst. I just remember hauling everything out of there and putting it into the hallway, of this little tiny house we lived in. And then these guys were doing some construction in the house and like, uh, can, can we get by this bed frame? It was in the hallway. All of his stuff was out there and they're like, is there, is there a kid in there? We're like, yeah, that's our kid in there. And we, they'd see us open the door and, and it was like, if we could have, we would have slid food under the door. Um, you know, it was kind of a Hannibal Lecter thing we had. We had them all. He had a big mask <laughs> on. And these what, what, weird uh, spiky things in front of his mouth. How long did you mm. put him through this? Four years. Four, four, <laughs> four and a half years. No, uh-huh. I, I, it wasn't that long, but it was hard because we, di- we didn't know what other, we had no other recourse. And I can't remember why. Isn't that odd? You can't remember why and whether it worked or not. But it was one of these things. It was really difficult because... We're, I think of ourselves, Lace and I were good parents. I mean, you sort of figured out as you go along, tried to do the best we possibly could. We tried to read as much as we could. We went to different seminars and things, learning how to, to, um, but he'd always been a tough kid. Always, he's the reason we didn't, we weren't going to have four, but then he was so horrible when he was a baby and then just tough kid to have to deal with. Always said he was like reincarnated, that he was just uncomfortable being a kid that didn't have the tools to communicate beyond. Um, and you can, you hear him on the radio now and he's really an, an amazing human being, but boy, he just really had a difficult time with his childhood. Um, but you know, things worked out and if you had him on the radio, I, I'm, I'm sure he would remember that and, um, he would probably, make some sort of remark about why are you bringing this back up again? But, um, <laughs> that's right. That's, that was my yeah. hesitancy in reaching out is we don't have a song that's, um, I don't yeah, know, talking about childhood trauma with, with Rye or something. Well, that was the big thing, right? It was Dr. Spock's book that came out in the 60s and, you know, Spare the Rod, Spoil the Child, and the spanking was, was not frowned upon and, you know, tough discipline uh, to get the kid to sort of, learn the rules and the boundaries and make them accountable for their behavior. We've gone away from that where people are really concerned about the self-esteem of the child. Self-esteem is earned. <clears throat> it's just not given or not just assume that the kid is going to have self-esteem and all these things are just, you assume the self-esteem is there and then you do everything you can to possibly protect it by, you know, giving everybody a trophy and sort of this more lax parenting. Do they say this is a new type of parenting that has come out? Oh no, this is an old type of parenting and it's something that's, that's being looked at again because I guess people are, you know, examining it. But no, this is not new. This is, this is actually old and it's being discredited as something that's, that's probably not very effective. However, when you consider mm-hmm. the stories that we talk about all the time with the kids being unable to or unwilling to want to drive a car or talk on the phone or do anything. I mean, there is a level of coddling, I think, that goes on now. And again, I don't have children, so I I, I don't really have a, a very strong opinion about this because 
I don't know what it would be like to have to deal with a discipline problem. It would be very, very hard to know what the right thing to do is and what the outcome mm-hmm. would be ultimately. Um, so, you know, everybody's a, you know, kind of Monday morning, morning, uh, quarterback on this stuff, but it's, it's, it's really, when you look at, there's a, there was a book that went, that, that came out of many years ago and I can't remember what it's called. It's called something like parents don't matter. And it essentially mm-hmm. said that you can do anything you can you can try as hard as you want to be a good parent but for the most part most of the influence comes from kids peers and that that's where they're really going to get the the form their formative years are going to be shaped mostly by their peers and their environment oh, yeah. that parenting oh, yeah. is eh, a little bit uh irrelevant sometimes so you do the best you can you try the best you can to to, to help them and put them on the right track and hope for the best I think it's consistency was the thing that we were always told to be consistent, always have the boundaries and stay consistent with these. Don't don't waver on them and then try to keep open lines of communication between your kids so that as they age and they go out into the world and they're affected by their peers and culture, that they can come to you and talk to you, that they should always be able to talk to you. Um, And if you can keep those lines open and they since they have, you know, a like a port in the storm, a lighthouse that they can go to it that's consistently there all the time for them. And then as you get older, you don't judge them as they're bringing stuff to you. You don't like overreact. Oh, my God, I can't believe you did that. Yeah, you, you just sort of, you can have the overreaction at night when they've gone to bed. You're like, oh, my God, did you hear what he said to us? But you, you just, you want to always make sure that they feel safe to be able to tell you what's happening in their life. So there you go. That's all the advice we have for you. All right, now go get them, everybody. Go parent better. <laughs> Nate, go get them. Got yeah, there at the that helped me plumbing out. traffic desk. Yeah, <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> you know, it's you're up late. You're trying to book a flight somewhere like the Sydney, Australia, and you clicky-click, and you're clicking across thing, and you're like, yeah, and then you're like, well, okay, I'll take that. Yeah, hey, that's a good, man, that is cheap. Look at that. I could fly from New York to Sydney for just, what, a, a couple, two, three, four hundred bucks. I don't know what his round-trip ticket was. But, well, it didn't work out that way. Sherry did it. Is Sherry there? Just uh, she's connected, I think. Disembodied voice in the back. I, I think uh, she's, she's listening talking to something. Back. <laughs> eh, skip over her. Jacob, okay. is there sound on this poor guy? Here's the <laughs> there deal. Is, yeah. So he's planning a trip to Sydney, Australia, and accidentally books a flight to Sydney, Montana. Here's a story about a man who thought he'd bagged a bargain. A $700 trip from New York to Sydney, Australia. I saw mountain top yeah. covered with white snow. At that point, I knew I was in trouble. Mr. Barnett was indeed heading to Sydney, except it was a different Sydney, in a different time zone in freezing cold Montana. It's a matter of acronyms, the SYD as opposed to SDY. Somebody has to fix that. The giveaway came when he touched down after the first leg at a town called Billings and saw the plane that was going to take him to his final destination. It was really funny. Kingsley came and he goes, I've got a problem. The lady behind the counter, Carol, was kind. Well, Carol, it was not a paycheck. It was a human being she was dealing with. Imagine how it would feel to think you're landing in Sydney, Australia, and here you are in Billings, Montana. Billings hotel manager Shelley Mann seemed to be the only one unsurprised. It's the second time 
we have had a guest who was trying to get to Sydney, Australia. But of course he could have stayed to explore Billings, a former railroad town, now home to the tallest building in a five-state area and uh, Boot Hill Cemetery, where most residents died with their boots on. He goes, I want to go see kangaroos. He was so excited to see kangaroos, he told me. No roos in Billings, but Mr Barnett did make a new mate. Montana didn't have kangaroos, it had carols. And that was good enough for me. The intrepid traveller will attempt the trip again in June. Oh. What I like the guy. we've Person. got here is <laughs> failure to communicate. I, I don't buy this. <laughs> what? Whoa. <laughs> hot take from Sherry. One I'm minute sorry. she's not on the air, and next minute I'm she's sorry. back on with a hot take. <laughs> sorry, sorry. She was I, charging up the hotter, the hotter take. I, I was, oh, okay. I yeah, was. she was. So I just think this, either this guy is so. I, I mean, how dumb can you be, right? I mean, that you. First of all, the cost of the ticket, okay? Bill, uh, Billings, Monta- or, uh, uh, Sydney, Montana versus Sydney, Australia. Oh boy, yeah. It only costs 149 bucks to go there. Come on, please. He had to know the difference. And then he gets there, and I think he thinks people are going to feel sorry for him and then maybe give him a real ticket or something like that. I just, how could anybody make that big of a mistake? Take. And, and he sees the small plane, right? He sees there's nine people on the plane. Wouldn't you at some point go, hey, hey, excuse me, um, uh, flight attendant, we are going to Sydney, Australia, right? And also, he's in the waiting room. Wow. There's a yeah, there's a thing up there. There's there's yeah. a thing up there that says where you're going, right? Sydney. <laughs> it's just okay. Okay, then what's his motive? Why he do it he, then, huh? I think what he wanted is he wanted somebody. He did that on purpose, and he wanted somebody to feel sorry for him. And say, oh, the poor guy, he made a mistake. Wait he a wants minute. to see the kangaroos. He, he, bo- he intentionally booked the wrong flight, intentionally, to go there so people feel sorry for him? I don't. Either that or his IQ is, I mean, come on. It, it, how, many mista- how many mistakes in a row can you make, right? You make I think the, that question, you, and how many hot takes to him in a row the, can the, you the, make? The, the, the price of the ticket. The size of the plane, All right, I'll the, tell you what, the Miss, length of the Miss, flight. Miss Dowdy Doubt, hot yeah. take gal. Jacob's going to book this guy, and you get a chance to just, <laughs> you know, just rip him up one side right. and down the other. I'll be polite, right. but I, I'll be direct because right. I just think it's ridiculous. So his, he did it because he wanted people to feel sorry for him. All right, fine.